Welcome to the Forge by Trust podcast. I'm your host, Robin Dreek, former United States Marine, spy recruiter, and trust expert. This episode of Forge by Trust is brought to you by my guest, Jim Lawler's latest book, In the Twinkling of an Eye. In the Twinkling of an Eye is a story about espionage, family love, and loyalty focused on a Russian-North Korean conspiracy to develop a devastating biological weapon for assassination, terror, and genocide, as written by a senior CIA operations officer whose career was devoted to battling the spread of weapons of mass destruction. This is the second book in the Thrilling Guild series. You can check out this and his other books at Amazon.com or check out the show notes. Coming up next on the Forged by Trust podcast. But I had no idea that I would become basically a spy recruiter. It became clear to me what exactly the CIA wanted me to do. To be blunt, they wanted me to manipulate people, to exploit people, to subvert people, to suborn people, to convince them to betray a trust, to commit espionage. When we recruit foreign spies, We're asking them to join our team, to give up their team, (laughs) to basically betray the trust that had been put in them. And if you exude that kind of trust, which is the fundamental basis of any human relationship, then it's much easier for someone to then say, okay, Robin, I trust you. My life is in your hands. Welcome to the show. I'm Robin Dreek, and on the Forged by Trust podcast, we decode the interpersonal communication skills of the world's most acclaimed forgers of trust. We unlock the skills and techniques from spies, spy recruiters, master interrogators, globally recognized behavioral experts, C-suite executives, entrepreneurs, acclaimed authors, and thought leaders. Each episode provides specific actions that you can immediately apply to any aspect of your personal or professional life. Today's episode, The Metaphysics of Recruiting, is with my good friend and world-renowned CIA spy recruiter, Jim Lawler. Mr. Lawler serves as a national security consultant and is the senior partner at MDO Group, which provides human training to the intelligence community and the commercial sector focused on weapons of mass destruction, counterintelligence, technical, and cyber issues. Mr. Lawler is a noted speaker on the insider threat in government and industry. Prior to this, Mr. Lawler served for 25 years as a CIA operations officer in various international posts and as chief of the Counterproliferation Division's Special Activities Unit. His overseas assignments included Bern, Paris, Oslo, and Zurich. Mr. Lawler was a member of the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service from 1998 until his retirement in 2005. He was a specialist in the recruitment of foreign spies, and he spent well over half of his CIA career battling the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. During the episode today, we talk about getting recruited by the CIA, the personality of a spy recruiter, inspiring trust to betray trust, the techniques for recruiting spies, and the metaphysics of recruiting. Jim, you are a world-renowned spy recruiter, but everyone has an origin story. And I know you were not born, most likely, maybe you were, saying, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to recruit spies. (laughs) Absolutely not. I backed into this profession, and it's a very peculiar profession, to be honest with you. But I had no idea that I would become basically a spy recruiter. I was a third-year law student at the University of Texas Law School, and I was, like anybody in their last year of graduate school or college, you're looking for only one thing, and that's to get a job. I wanted a job, and I was interviewing with these law firms, and, and you know, things were going okay. 
But then the CIA was coming to campus and they were interviewing for attorneys for the Office of General Counsel. And I'm mm-hmm. sure, you know, the FBI and the CIA have got to have a whole raft full of attorneys to keep them out of trouble or to get them out of trouble sometime. <laughs> and so uh, on a whim, I just went to this recruiters, a CIA recruiters interview for attorneys. And within about two or three minutes, this gentleman named Bill Wood, he looks at me and he says, Jim, have you ever thought about the clandestine service? Now, this was 1976. The CIA did not even have a sign out on Dolly Madison Boulevard. It said Federal Highway Administration. (laughs) And I said to him, I said, I have no idea what the clandestine service is. And Mr. Wood said, well, Jim, he said, I think you'd be good at this. So he gave me an application. I took it home, but I I brought it back the next day because my wife's mother at that time was very, very ill. In fact, she was terminally ill. And there was no way that we were going to move to Washington, D.C. and then thousands of miles overseas. And so with some regret, I brought him back this application But I kept it in my mind. And instead of going into a law firm, as I had hoped to do, I got hired into a family business. My dad offered to pay me a very good salary to run this company that we had in Houston, Texas, which manufactured steel components for metal buildings. I made a lot of money. And I was miserable, absolutely miserable. And over the next three and a half years, I became unhappier and unhappier because it just wasn't psychologically satisfying to me. And I'd come home at night and complain to my wife and bless her heart, she put up with it for about three and a half years. And finally she said, Jim, either do something about it or stop your belly aching. Mm -hmm. So I kept Mr. Wood's card. I went into my office, I wrote him a letter and it was not, but three days later that a young lady called me up. She never said who she was with. All she said was, Mr. Wood received your letter, and he was wondering if you might be available next Thursday at three o'clock in the afternoon at the Gulf Freeways Holiday Inn. And I said, yes, ma'am, I think I could. So I met him. We talked for about two hours, and he says, Jim, I want to fly you to Washington in a couple of weeks for some tests. And so a couple of weeks later, I flew to Washington. I had two or three days of testing. I came back. Three months after that, they had me come back again. And they put me through the uh, polygraph test, which, you know, some people call that a lie detector test, but it's a stress test. Mm -hmm. And then they put me through the shrink exam. Lord knows how I got through that, but I did. And a couple more tests. And about three months after that, they called me up and said, we'd like to offer you a job as an operations officer. Now, the bizarre thing, Robin, is I had no idea what a CIA operations officer does. But I was so desperate for a job, I would have taken anything. It could have been on the planet Neptune. I just wanted to get out of Houston, Texas, away from this family business. And so a couple of months later, My wife and I, we packed up the car. We had a little cocker spaniel. My wife was pregnant with our first child. And we moved to Washington, D.C. in February of 1980. And then over the next two or three weeks, it became kind of clear to me what exactly the CIA wanted me to do. To be blunt, they wanted me to manipulate people, to exploit people, to subvert people, to suborn people, 
to convince them to betray a trust, to commit espionage. And I found out that not only was I pretty good at it, but I enjoyed the hell out of it. Okay, so I want to go back. There's some great moments in there. First of all, our origin stories, we have some interesting parallels. So, Jim, Mr. Wood, all those years ago, how old were you when you first met Mr. Wood? I was 23. Wow. So at 23 years old, what did he see? What was there about you in that engagement that you had with him? You know, that's a great question, Robin. And a couple of only a couple of people have asked me that before. But he he was a former case officer himself. And the old saying about it takes one to know one. And I think he must have seen that I had fairly strong interpersonal skills, that I was passionate, that I was fairly articulate and that I, I, I was likable. And I think you have to be likable in order to be a good recruiter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to be somebody who's a good listener, somebody who's fairly, you know, receptive to other people who doesn't antagonize people. Obviously, you're not going to recruit people if you antagonize them. Right. And so for all those reasons, he even though he was there to hire attorneys for the Office of General Counsel, he was a former ops officer himself. And saw something else. Saw something in me. And so I don't know if OGC, Office of General Counsel, if they would have slapped his fingers for going outside of his area where he was supposed to be doing, but he was a spotter. And so he spotted me. Sure. And there's another, a couple other things I want to explore a little bit there too. You said you made a lot of money. A lot of money. How? What was your skill set for making a lot of money? Well, okay. I tripled our sales in probably about two years. Sales. Again, again, persuasion, you know. Sales, yep. And I was always pretty low key. I remember one time I went on a sales call and I met a woman. And she had a child who had Down syndrome. And so I was sitting there and she had to take some phone calls. She was running the business. And I just started playing with this child. I didn't think anything of it. I just thought it was the decent thing to do is to play with this little boy. And she came back over and she saw me playing with him. And she thanked me. And I didn't hear from her for about two or three months. But then, man, we got the biggest order Mm. we ever did. Simply because I was trying to be, you know, a humanitarian gesture. I like little children, and so I was, you know, I, I just uh, connected with her. Use that language. You're a decent man. Well, I tried to be, and by doing that, it gained her trust, and she thought, "I want to do business with Jim Lawler." So that is the reason for your success. So, what drove you away from the family business then? What What was unfulfilling for you? Okay, so. My mother had died while I was in law school. My wife's mother passed away. The unfulfilling part was, and again, I was making a lot of money. In fact, in order to go to work for the CIA, I had to take more than a 50% income cut. I bet. But, and I had all kinds of things. I had great medical benefits. I had a company car. I had all these benefits and it just wasn't satisfying. I always felt like whatever I did it was only a shadow of what my dad had done in starting the business. Mm. And I always wanted to be my own man. I wanted to do something where it wasn't that my name was Lawler. You know, the company's name was Lawler Manufacturing. I didn't want to ride on his coattails. I wanted to do something on my own. And I'd always been very patriotic. 
my family has a strong military tradition. I didn't serve in the military, so I felt, I guess, some kind of guilt for not having done that. You know, I was I had a, a, a college exemption, so I didn't get drafted or anything. And by the time I finished law school, the Vietnam War and the draft were over, and I'd never fulfilled what I felt was an obligation to our country. So all those things were factors. My father, by the way, had remarried a woman that I didn't care for a whole lot. So that led to a lot of family tension at home. And I just wanted to do something on my own, something where nobody knew my name and whatever I accomplished was something that I accomplished, not something that I was riding on my dad's coattails. I love my dad. I love my brothers. They were in the business. But I always jokingly say that, ask people, how many of you are in a family business? And I said, it's that F word family. <laughs> right. Just got to, I wanted to go and I wanted to see overseas. I wanted to, I'd lived in Texas all my life. I went to Rice University in Houston. I went to University of Texas Law School in Austin. I traveled a little bit, but it just wasn't fulfilling. So it's interesting, Jim. So the next area I want to explore you obviously, and you come across like this just in a Zoom call. You are likable, and you know these things about yourself. I know, and that moment with the new potential client with a son with Down syndrome was a moment of natural empathy that you have, right. which can be very counter to a lot of the words you used a few minutes ago: manipulation, subterfuge. And yet you were very naturally excited about sharing those things that you were doing for the CIA. How do those things come together in your mind? Well, I just like to be blunt about things. I like to tell people, this is what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to persuade people to commit treason. When we recruit foreign spies, we're asking them to join our team, to give up their team, <laughs> to basically betray the trust that had been put in them. I was great at, at getting them to switch sides. It's still a betrayal. They're betraying someone. Mm -hmm. And yet uh, that's, that's exactly what we have to do for national security and to get them to give up those secrets, to basically do all the things that guys like you and the FBI would come after, you know, a folk, somebody for counterintelligence reasons, you know, anybody who would betray the United States, the FBI should be all over them. Well, I was getting people to do exactly that, to forsake the loyalty they had to their country and to give me that loyalty, to transfer that loyalty to me. It's a complicated business. Yes. And it's complicated because you're having to convince, persuade, manipulate, inspire, whatever words we're going to use, someone else to betray a trust. But at the same time, you have to trust them and they have to trust you with their lives. How did you inspire trust while at the same time inspiring them to betray trust. <laughs> I know it is. It sounds ironic, but that's essentially what you have to do. In fact, a friend of mine, a fellow CIA officer, once asked a KGB defector how we could recruit a, a, you know, one of his a KGB, fellow KGB officers. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, first off, he says, and he used the, the Russian, I'm going to probably mispronounce it, but he says, Seryozhna Chilovek, you have to be a serious person hmm. because I am going to put my life and my family's lives in your hands. And so I have to trust you. I have to be able to trust you that you are going to handle me in a very professional manner. And if you exude that kind of trust, 
which is the fundamental basis of any human relationship, then it's much easier for someone to then say, okay, Robin, I trust you. My life is in your hands. To exude transparency, which is one reason, like you said, you like being blunt because transparency empowers people with knowledge. They have knowledge. They can make choices, which gives people that psychological comfort. I'm curious also you did a lot of these things very naturally, it sounds like, but at the same time, all of us, at least I haven't met anyone yet that hasn't had one or two humbling moments along the way where they said they had an aha. Did you have any ahas earlier on in your career that said, hey, I need to do something a little bit different, a little bit better, or you you were so natural at doing this that didn't really come? No, I think everybody everybody makes mistakes. I made a lot of mistakes. In fact, I used to give a talk called My Favorite Failures. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> because you learn more from making mistakes. And sometimes it's the question you didn't ask. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a classic example. I had an agent, an asset who I was running, and he was deeply involved in his country's nuclear weapons program. Now, he himself was not a weapons designer. He was a, an engineer, and he was working inside of this foreign country's nuclear weapons establishment. And I'd been running this guy for a while. And one time he says to me, he said, Jim, I'm kind of surprised you never asked what my wife does. And I said, oh, well, what does your wife do? He said, oh, she's a nuclear weapons designer. (laughs) (laughs) I went, oh, really? (laughs) I'd like to meet your wife. But sometimes it's it's a question you you don't ask. Sometimes it's not being persistent enough. Towards the end of the Cold War, I was developing an Eastern European intelligence officer, and I pitched him to commit espionage. And he had been giving me all the signals that he really would like to work with us, but he hesitated. He he kind of he he never said no, which is a good sign. He didn't say no, but he didn't really he didn't really bite. And the sad thing was, is I was getting ready to move away from that station to another station within a week or so, and I just didn't. I didn't set the hook. I didn't get him to, I didn't go back and I wasn't persistent enough to say, come on now, what is it? What are your hesitations? Tell me about it. You know, why are you hesitating here? You can see the handwriting on the wall because these communist countries were failing. They were falling. He was not going to have a job anymore. Right. And he was very vulnerable, but I I didn't, I failed on that one. Yeah. They're fascinating. One of the things my Jedi masters trained me in New York to do working with people like you were working with when we had, whether SVR or GRU officers that were on board. One of the first things I learned from my Jedi masters was ask them what they think you should know. (laughs) Great question. Yeah. Great. Because you have, you have your tasks that you think are important, but there's a lot high probability that they they know what's more important than you. And and asking that question, he could have volunteered, well, my wife is a weapons designer. <laughs> right. I mean, I've, I've had assets before who tell me, okay, Jim, this, this, and this, but here's the bottom line. Right. When they tell you what the bottom line is, and it's not written down anywhere, but they know what the bottom line is. That is absolutely pure gold. It really is. And what it requires is, is again, humility humility that, hey, someone else in this room might know more than me. And if I just shut up a little longer and allow them to share their expertise, maybe we'll go a little bit further. You hit hit the nail on the head right there. I, I always tell people when I'm teaching folks how to recruit, I said, you know, 
you don't recruit people when you're in transmit mode. Mm. You recruit people by listening. You know, it's a great question and great segue then, as I know you conduct a lot of training. And so, Jim, share your thoughts about training and the challenges of training people to do this. <laughs> well, I did this from the time I retired in 2005. I've done it for about the last 17 years. I've taught CIA officers. I've taught FBI special agents. I've taught DIA case officers. Now, I specialize in teaching people how to recruit foreign scientists, especially scientists who are maybe nuclear weapons designers or somebody who's in a a country's biological weapons program, things like that. And we're trying to teach people to look for stresses in people's lives because I never, ever recruited a happy person. Right. You don't recruit happy people. You recruit people that are going through stress and you have to be patient. Well, one of your colleagues, Robert Graves, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he came to me. I was running this out of CIA and Department of Energy Intelligence. And he came to me and he said, we need to get more special agents into this. And so that was way back in 2006 or 2007. And so suddenly I started. In fact, we used to have waiting lists of all the special agents that yes, wanted you did. to <laughs> We managed them all. I remember it. It was a highly popular class. Yeah, well, we worked with actual scientists. I yeah. mean, we, we weren't people trying to pretend to be scientists. So we got real scientists in front of these, in front of the students. And we would take them, especially in what we called the charm school. We would teach them the essentials of recruiting. And then they had to take the, the scientist. We pretended that he was a foreign scientist and they got five meetings. And on the last meeting, they had to pitch the scientists to commit espionage. And they would have a senior operational mentor there counseling them on kind of what they did right and what, where maybe there's some areas of improvement. And those were extremely popular courses. I wish they, they still did them because we all, the instructors, the students, everybody had a great time doing this. And anytime you teach, you're learning. Anytime you're learning, you're learning. I mean, it, it's, it, it makes that collaborative environment where it becomes a, a, a master class. Absolutely. Well, let me, let me put it this way. I had one student who looked me up about, oh, maybe a year or so after he took the course. And he said, Jim, I've got to tell you this. And he said, I just recruited a nuclear weapon designer in one of our adversary nations. And he said, I never would have even approached this person had I not had the confidence that your course gave me. So I thought, you know, and then I had another one who told us where he had access to where all the fissile, the fissile is the material that goes into a nuclear weapon, where Mm -hmm. all the fissile material in his country was. And again, the, the case officer attributed his success to having taken the course and gotten his confidence level up. But on my keys to success for recruiters, my first thing is basically an officer, a special agent or a case officer has to be curious. Mm. And I'm just a naturally curious person. If I hadn't done what I did, I would have loved to have been a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Because I think people are like snowflakes. All of them are different. Yes. There used to be a television show in the 1950s called Naked City. And at the end of the program, it said there are a million stories in the Naked City. Right, right. Um, And I just I'm just inherently I'm curious about people. So that's that's really easy for me. Then the second quality is having a keen listening ability because you don't recruit people when you're talking. Right. I'm a I'm a slight extrovert. Introverts have a more have an easier time with this. 
No doubt. This thing. I'm a slight extrovert. And we have found out that either a slight extrovert or a slight introvert is probably the best recruiter. If you're an extreme extrovert, you're always talking. And if you're an extreme introvert, you want to go hide. <laughs> so by, by having some listening, you know, being able to listen to people, to become their therapist, in essence, to me, that was always a, a key. A safe place to share. And then the third thing is extreme empathy. Mm. Be empathic to put yourself inside somebody else's head, to find redeeming qualities too. Somebody asked me yesterday, how could you recruit someone who's a real scuzz bucket, you know? And I said, I was able to find at least one redeeming quality in these Mm -hmm. people. They might not have been somebody I would have ever made friends with outside of my job. But if I could find one thing that I thought, okay, this explains to me the way they are, then that helped me do it. Uh, it's amazing when you do that too, especially when you were so immersed in the cultures that you were recruiting in, mm-hmm. it's very, it's much easier to see the world from someone else's perspective because you're literally walking a mile in their shoes and not judging what choices would I have made if I was walking in your shoes it becomes extremely empowering to make that connection because you let go of that judgment. Well, right. And I've, I've told people, I said, never talk about people, you know, using some kind of either racial or other epithet, you know, because you can't, you can't do that. You can't hold these people in contempt and then successfully recruit them. Absolutely. And and it affects your personal brand too, which will destroy everything. If it, if anyone even thinks that about you. Yeah, they can sense it. The next thing is basically patience. In one case, it took me 11 years to recruit someone. So here's a fascinating thing about patience. (laughs) Patience is challenging in organizations, less challenging, I think, in the CIA because CIA is all about recruiting. But in organizations, whether it's the FBI, which is mostly law enforcement or in business, bosses have a hard time with patience as you're developing relationships, which are going to pay these massive dividends. How does someone articulate why you should have patience to the bosses? Any idea? Well, because sometimes people are not recruitable today, but they can be recruitable in a heartbeat when something goes wrong. One of my first significant cases, we had gotten a cable from CIA headquarters that asked everybody worldwide to go after folks from a particular country because we were entering in to a very, very high stake set of negotiations with this country. And we had absolutely no sources to tell us what this other country's negotiating positions were. And this was extremely high stakes. And so I had, through pure serendipity, met a person from this country who met exactly the criteria that my headquarters wanted. And so I started intensifying what we call the developmental phase, Mm -hmm. building the trust, everything else, so you can get up to that point where you can then pitch that person to commit espionage, the recruitment pitch. Well, I was a naive first tour officer, and I, in my own naivete, thought that I could recruit this gentleman whom I'd met through sheer force of personality and our friendship. Well, that doesn't work, really. (laughs) There has to be a reason why people do this. But I, I wrote this recruitment cable proposal to headquarters. They were so desperate, they agreed with me to do this. 
And so I pitched the guy and he looked at me and he says, Jim, he said, you know, you and I are friends, but what you're proposing, that's morally wrong. Hmm. Now I've pitched, I don't know, probably over 60 people in my career. And he's the only guy who ever posed a moral objection. Most people, if they turn you down, they only turn you down for one reason, and that's fear. Right. And, but this guy said, no. And so I was smart enough to back off and say, well, I didn't think, you know, we were friends. I thought it would be something that would be mutually helpful for us, but I backed off. Well, we have a saying at CIA that it's okay to get turned down, but not to get turned in. Right. And if he went and complained to his ambassador, Oh, and a small detail I didn't mention earlier is he was number two in the embassy. Yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah, that's a big deal. So I had just pitched a very senior officer in this, this neighboring embassy, you know, foreign embassy. And if he went and complained and his ambassador had a terrible reputation for being a real hothead, right. I could just see him storming into our ambassador's office and delivering a strongly worded complaint, a démarche about young Mr. Lawler, who just propositioned his deputy to commit treason. Yep. And I don't know about FBI, but I was thinking CIA headquarters is 5,000 miles from here. And guess what they're going to be thinking? How did Lawler screw this up? Yep. Oh, I've been there, done this. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, my, yeah. my follow-up question to that is, were you able to maintain the relationship with it or did he well, cut it off? Let me, yeah, let me continue. So about three days after that, you know, and I'm sweating there thinking, Oh, geez, I hope he didn't tell his ambassador. Did I end my career, right? <laughs> my career's in the toilet. And and so I, I thought, okay, I'm going to call him up and just take his temperature. So I called him up and I said, hey, I really enjoyed our dinner the other night. I was wondering if maybe you'd like to repeat it this coming Friday. And to my great relief, he did not hang up in my ear. He said, you know, Jim, I was thinking the same thing. Let's do that. So I went to that follow-up dinner with my only goal being, let's smooth out any ruffled feathers. Let's make sure that we're just, I was not going to bring up anything. Of course, I wasn't going to do the pitch again. That would have been right, right. But I just wanted to make sure that we were still buddies. We get to the restaurant. And the first words out of his mouth, Jim, that offer you made me last week, is that still good? And I said, well, yeah, I mean, I offered it to you because we're friends. And he says, well, what you don't know is that three days after our dinner, my wife announced that she wants a divorce. And I can't afford to pay her the alimony to which she's legally entitled and put my two high school age boys in private schools when I go home next next year to my country. And it could, because in my country, you can only get a good education in a private school. I can't do that unless I accept your offer. He says, I know it's morally wrong, but I don't have a choice. I love my sons. And, you know, fortunately, I didn't say, I didn't argue with him. In fact, we learned something in law school that if the judge rules in your favor, get out of court quick and shut Just up. Shut up. <laughs> shut up. Wow. Well, he, he, started bringing out classified material to me. And the first time he did that, he handed me a stack that must have been three or four inches thick of classified material. And he said, Jim, let me tell you something. 
He said, I hate my ambassador. That son of a bitch steals credit for everything I do and everybody else in the embassy. And he goes around this country saying what a great guy he is. He says, when I'm handing you this classified material, it's as if I'm kicking that son of a bitch in the face. I took it and I said to him, I said, you and I are friends. This is so much fun. Let's kick him again. Bring me some more. (laughs) It's such a common theme that I experience as well is that I never, again, everyone's different. Everyone's experience is different, but the individuals that I worked with never felt themselves as betraying their country. They're going after individuals like they couldn't stand Putin and his oligarchs. Right. They're proud Russians or proud, you know, good, proud family names or something that they wanted to uphold. They they never saw themselves as committing espionage, even though that's what they were doing. They saw themselves having retribution against someone who was unworthy of their trust. <laughs> I found that one of the most powerful motivations was revenge. I mean, you ask yourself, 98 percent, 99 percent of the people are like us. You're taught not to betray a trust. Mm-hmm. But. Those who do that, they feel like they've been betrayed first. Yeah. And it's that Jesuits have a phrase called covert compensation. So it's not like, you know, you guys betrayed me first. All I'm doing is evening the score. And so this guy, boy, did he even the score? He went back in his country and even the sc- <laughs> man, he was, he was fabulous. fabulous. He, he gave us stuff that saved our country tens of billions of dollars and yeah. because he gave us not only what their negotiating positions were and their fallback positions, but their walkaway positions. And he felt totally justified in doing that. You know, Jim, it's moments like this where all I can do is is give you massive thanks for what you've done for our country. You are one of those people, and I've known a few in my life too, some Jedi masters like you that no one has any idea the impact on national security folks like you have made. So thank you for all that you've done, but getting to the next one. So that was patience and what a great lesson on patience. What's the next one? Well, persistence and having a laser like focus. I mentioned earlier, I'd pitched an Eastern European, a communist official, and then he was a communist intelligence officer. And I just wasn't persistent enough to, to follow through. So persistence, I had that other case where it took me 11 years to recruit someone. He was unrecruitable for probably 10 and a half years. But then in the last at year 10 and a half, his ethnic group lost control of the country. And he went back to his capital and he wrote me and he said, Jim, he says, it's unfair. It's, there's a glass ceiling. And he said, no matter how hard I work, I'll never be promoted because I'm not a member of the dominant ethnic group anymore. And by the way, he went through, he, he also went through a divorce. And I like to tell people, you know, I've never been through a divorce, but I know what a psychologically tumultuous time that is when you are just adrift emotionally, right. under stress financially. So his wife goes, takes their baby daughter back to her home country. And here he is just devastated. And so I asked him if I could meet him abroad somewhere and talk about some other opportunities. That took me about 30 seconds to break cover, to tell him that I was really a CIA officer and ask him if he wanted to join my team. He said, absolutely. Now you've given me something to live for. You know, it's interesting also, Jim, that I think people 
often don't know that they're if they're not in this business and they're just listening to this. When you hear the word CIA case officer recruiting spies and things like that, it, it seems like it's impersonal and that you know, once you manipulate someone, it's done, you never think of them again. But just listening to your recollections of these relationships, because they were relationships, even though they're for a purpose, even though was, they were betraying their countries and asking all that, but they these are very solid, strong relationships you've had, because if they weren't, you wouldn't remember them with this kind of detail. So, and that's important for the other person to see that. I mean, you were genuine and sincere when engaging, were you not? Absolutely. He, he and I still communicate and he would, he signs his letter as your brother. Yep. Oh and, my gosh, yes. And in 2001 on 9-11, he was back in his home country. In fact, he was in his country's foreign ministry. And he said he saw those twin towers coming down. And he said, I almost did myself a counterintelligence disservice because I got very emotional. And some of my colleagues were wondering, why are you so emotional? You're not an American. But he says, you know, Jim, I'm on your team now. Yeah. And he he says, when they brought those towers down, they were they were hitting me too. He had he had basically joined my team. And he he also joked that the money that we paid him over the years, he started his own business. He left his ministry. He started his own business. And he says, sometime I'd like to have a picture of you, of me, and I'm going to put it up in the business. And under the under your picture is going to say our founder. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So what's the next one, Jim? Creativity. I, I, you have to be flexible and creative and appeal to people. You know, what, what, is, what is it that they need? You have to become what they need. You know, I like to say, you know, the perfect cover is somebody who's a shapeshifter, someone mm-hmm. who can detect exactly what you need, and then you become what they need. Absolutely. Then the next one is being a careful observer of stressors in people's lives. Yes. I used to be a rock climber and I like to ask my students, how many of you are rock climbers? And maybe one or two people will raise their hands and I'll say, well, tell me, how do you climb the rock? And they say, well, you look for cracks. I said, that's right. And you can't see the crack system if you're a long way off, but if you get close and you study the rock, you can see what, what the crack system is, where you put your fingers and your toes. And I said, people are just like that. Over time, I study to see what the crack system is. What is it that's causing these people stress? And everybody, inevitably, everybody is under stress at some point. And it may take 10 and a half years like it did or 11 years like it did in my friend's case. You know, when I first met him, he was single, very well paid, happy-go-lucky guy. But stress came into his life. And being a, a student of stressors in people's lives, I think, is key. And you never burned a bridge, ever. No, 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 never, 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 never. Then the next term is one that's a, a pretty harsh term. I call it ruthlessness. Right. It really, I really mean focus and not forgetting why you're doing this, that you're not doing this just to be friends with somebody. In fact, the most uh, most of the mediocre case officers or special agents, the reason they're mediocre, in my opinion, is they're afraid of offending someone or they're afraid of hurting somebody's feelings or making somebody say, well, Robin, you are just after me for this classified information. And you've got to be 
you've got to be ruthless in the sense of taking the risk. And I tell folks, if you've never been turned down in a recruitment pitch, you haven't pitched enough people. No kidding. (laughs) You've got to learn what the limits are and learn from those mistakes. But don't think you're doing this just to become that person's friend. Sure, you can do the friendship, but that's not the reason we're paying you to do this. We're paying you to do this to recruit foreign spies. So, Jim, when someone confronts you and says, you just wanted to be my friend to get me to do X, Y, and Z, what was your response? Well, I never had anybody say that because that by that point, they were so comfortable with it. They were so comfortable. And by that time, they probably already accepted some money for things. One of my things that I did occasionally was I'd talk to somebody and after two or three meetings, I'd come in and I'd say, you know, I, I took the liberty of reporting to Washington some of our conversation And I was amazed this morning when I walked into the embassy, they had given me a $2,000 exceptional performance award just based on the teamwork that you and I had. And I said, I can't accept that. I have to give you at least half of it. And so I'd have an envelope with $1,000 or something like that in it. Mm -hmm. I'd slip it over under a menu. And if they said, no, no, no. I said, look, if if you don't take it, I'm going to be guilty of intellectual property theft. I basically, you know, I said, I can't, I, you don't want me to feel guilty like this, do you? And they would always, they would take it or little favors I do for people mm-hmm. things like that to get, you know, the old principle of reciprocity to get them feel obliged. And after a while, they're feeling like, you know, now are they going to report that the fact that Jim got me a special deal on something or like, no, they're not, they're not going to do that. And you, you've kind of increased that friendship. So you know, yeah, ruthlessness in the sense of, remember, this isn't just you out there taking folks out on Uncle Sam's dime. You've got, there's a point to this, you know, you don't make progress in every meeting, maybe not, but don't, don't just sit there static, build up the trust, keep going, keep going, make little incremental, you know, progress as you go. Absolutely. Then I think having a powerful or persuasive personality, it's it's something, and that's something we can't teach. You're either born with that or you're not, to have a persuasive personality. And for some reason, I guess I was blessed with a fairly persuasive personality. And then finally, we get into the thing that you mentioned a few minutes ago, and that's what I call the metaphysics of recruitment. And this is a very mystical thing. I mentioned it in my novels, that it's my experience that the best case officers, when they're at the top of their, at the top of their abilities, they are able to mentally link into someone metaphysically into their mind. And I always visualize it almost as an invisible hook going out into your mind. And it's somewhat hypnotic, but it's, it's even past hypnosis. One of my students a very talented knock, one of our deep cover officers. He said, Jim, you don't know it, but you use a lot of the same techniques that Dr. Milton Erickson, who developed hypnotherapy, used. He said, your voice is fairly slow and soothing. It's uh, had one asset tell me that when she was talking to me, that she felt like her brain was in a warm water bed. Mm-hmm. And so I want to relax people. I want to be their therapist. But there's this metaphysical quality the metaphysics, as I call it, mm-hmm. where somehow, and if, if nothing else, if all it does is increase my confidence, then that's fine because you have to have confidence as a recruiter. 
And so my imagining this, that I can reach into your mind, that you and I are now one, and that explosions could be going off, and you won't notice it, and neither will I, because we're in a different universe, a different dimension. Right. And I know that some of the best recruiters, if you if you ever see or observe somebody like that, it's like watching a very, very gifted athlete as they're running down the track. And in that last 50 yards, it's just totally, they're blurring time and space. And it's just, it is absolutely a thing of beauty. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely beautiful to watch this. Pure poetry. Pure poetry. Absolutely. A masterpiece. Yeah. Jim, again, I'm transfixed just listening to you. What What a gift you are to our country, to the world. You have those two qualities of skills and techniques that you've learned and been imbued in you as well as born with is at the same time you have that passion for teaching and sharing. It's a beautiful blend of the two together because it's rare that someone has the skills and also has the skills to pass on the skills. So I thank you for that. I'm going to put lots of links to your great books and everything in the show notes. What's one or two places people can go to find out about you, to get some more courses from you, information, whatever it is you want to share, what can we promote now for you? Well, you can go on Amazon and get either of my books. The first novel that I wrote is called Living Lies. It's about the Iranian nuclear weapons program. It's it's fiction, but I'll be candid and tell you it's loosely based on some of my operations. And then the second espionage novel is called In the Twinkling of an Eye. And that's about a North Korean and Russian conspiracy to develop a very devastating genetic bioweapon for both assassination and genocide. And both novels feature CIA officers and FBI special agents. There's good guys and bad guys on both sides, which is true, I think, of any bureaucracy. We've all got our good guys and our bad guys. And I get a I get a big kick out of that, doing that. You can also find me on LinkedIn. I think that's how you found me. <laughs> yes, that's, that and, and mutual friends and contacts. This is a beautiful world we live in. There's It's that whole degree of separation. We only had one degree of separation, thankfully. <laughs> but yeah, LinkedIn is beautiful for that. Yeah. In fact, I think, as I recall, you and I had at least a dozen mutual friends that we knew, people that we respect and admire. Yeah. And I knew about you years ago when you were teaching and that your courses first came out. I was at our CI training center. When someone mentioned your name to me for the first time, I was like, I know that name. I have to know that name. That name's been around forever. It is, he is the Jedi master of all things that we do in life that mean something in the world of national security. Jim, I could keep going with you. Hopefully we'll even have you on again because I know this is going to be one of our most popular episodes, if not the number one, because you are clear, concise, with actionable tools, an amazing storyteller. Definitely pick up Jim's books because the greatest thing about Jim's books is, yes, they might be fiction, but with real, actionable, real-life skills that he has flushed out in the field. So by all means, pick up those books and connect with Jim. Jim, thanks again for coming on the show and sharing. Thank you, Robin. I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Forged by Trust. If you enjoyed the show, took away a few new tools, I hope you will leave a great review of the show to show your support. If you're interested in more information about how to forge your own trust-building strategies, please visit my website at www.peopleformula.com. I'm looking forward to sharing my next Forge by Trust episode with you next week when we chat with my friend and another master spy recruiter and insider threat expert, Shawnee Delaney. 
in the intriguing and critical episode, The Insider Thread.